Please be ready with me tonight in the book of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. The Bible teaches us how to live before God, and the Bible teaches us in various ways. There are absolute principles we live by, we embrace. There are historical narratives in Scripture, illustrations, parables, examples, inferential instruction, commands and prohibitions. In addition to all of this, when we read the Bible, we get to meet people. Not face to face, but the Holy Spirit tells us about people. And when we read the accounts, we begin to feel like we know these people. And we can learn from them. And when we read these accounts over and over, for instance, in the daily Bible reading cycle, and we hear sermons and classes, we begin to feel like we know these people and we can learn from them. Learn from them what we ought to do. In some cases, learn from them what we ought not to do. Tonight, I want us to review the stories of three couples. Zachariah and Elizabeth... Ananias and Sapphira, and then Aquila and Priscilla. We're going to encounter interesting dialogue. In one case, we will encounter tragedy. There will be suspense and joy and some good examples for us. But ultimately, there are practical takeaways for all of us to review and use in life, in the Holy Spirit's narratives about so many different people. So I'm going to be in Luke chapter 1 to begin, and I'm going to start at verse 5, and I'm going to read from verse 5 down over to verse 25, and then I'll pause and there will be some commentary, and then I want you to be ready on the next page or so in chapter 1 of Luke 67 through 80. Lengthy reading, but it will do us good and acquaint us with these good people. So I'm in Luke 1 at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name 
John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Go with me back now in verse 6. A significant statement is made of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we already know of Zechariah, that he did not have absolutely perfect faith. We see that in the narrative, but listen to what it says about the tenor of their character. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. These are people who want to be obedient to God. Luke gives us this entry point into the story of this couple. He tells us up front they were good people. It was not an easy time to be good. It was not an easy time to be righteous. There was an anxious anticipation about what might happen next. That was the buzz in the Jewish community. Then Elizabeth had been barren, which was difficult for a Jewish woman. And Luke wants us to know these were good people, faithful to God, though their circumstances were not perfect and entirely pleasant. So Zechariah is on duty. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, and of course he's troubled. Fear fell upon him. I want us to listen again to what the angel said in verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John the Baptist is being described in his function here in God's plan. Zechariah is old and he said, how do I know this is true? And Gabriel said, because your mouth's going to be shut for a while. You will be silent. You won't say anything until the day this takes place. And it was so. The announcement was made to Mary about Jesus. And then when John was born, Zechariah was able to speak. And did he ever speak? I'm going to take you now to chapter 1, 67 to 80. And while we are concerned primarily with the character of Zechariah and Elizabeth and their devotion to obey God, you will hear things here that pertain in general to God's scheme of redemption. But listen to this when he spoke. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, for he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him with fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. These parents of John the Baptist, this couple, not absorbed by the world, all that Luke reports to us leads us to believe these people were most concerned not about the present world, but about God and their obedience to Him. And now they're concerned about this new child. No fog of busyness on earth or worldly involvement kept them from their priority. God and this new child and what God would do through this new child and through the Savior who would come. And in the prophecy of Zechariah, these events are all connected to the tender mercy of God, not only to use these good people, but to provide salvation for all people. Zechariah has this fullness of knowledge now, as the Holy Spirit gives him these words when he spoke. Think of the value to the church, to children, to the community and the nation, when two people decide very early in life that they will be righteous before God, they will walk blamelessly in all His commandments and statutes of the Lord. What keeps couples today from these high and far-reaching commitments? 
In some cases, it may be selfishness, worldliness, materialism, obsession with entertainment, neglect of Bible reading and study, zero participation with a group of faithful Christians. So let's admire this couple the parents of John the Baptist, and thank God for their example, and then thank God for what God did through these good people, through John, and after John, the Savior who came. All of it has well-driven roots in the tender mercy of God. Acts chapter 5. Spoiler alert. This doesn't turn out good. No, this doesn't turn out good. Zechariah and Elizabeth, that narrative turned out good. This one doesn't turn out good. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart, you have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I warned you, a very different story compared to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Let me start here. In the New Testament, giving is voluntary, individual, and according to one's ability. In the New Testament, giving is voluntary, it's individual, and it's according to one's ability. There is no specified amount or percentage like the old covenant tithe. God wants His people to set the amount themselves based on the generosity and commitment of their hearts to His cause and the ongoing work that God has instructed. The judgment about all of this is made by God based on His perfect awareness of the hearts of the givers. Men on earth can describe the need, but men on earth cannot mandate the amount, 
nor engage in any monitoring of individual giving, nor do brethren have any right of enforcement. So all of that being said from the New Testament about giving, Ananias and Sapphira could have agreed on any amount less than the income from the land they sold. And had they been honest about it, they would have lived. The connection in this story is honesty and breathing. But Ananias kept back some for himself. Those are the key words. It says that right on the page, verse 2. He kept back for himself. And when you read from verse 2 into verse 3, all the way to verse 11, the necessary inference is, he acted like he was giving the total. And this was, verse 4, lying to men and to God with full knowledge of his wife. And you know the rest of the story, how God made this a singular example in the early times of the existence of the church. And verse 11 seems to say to us that it worked. Great fear came upon the whole church. Now what does this tell us about couples, about husband and wife? It tells us husband and wife should be united, but united in truth, not deception. See, unity in marriage is not valuable unless husband and wife are united in what is righteous. Let me say that again. Unity in marriage is not valuable unless husband and wife are united in what is righteous. That's the problem with many marriage seminars in the secular community. Secular community seminars that are not connected to God and the institution of marriage described in the Bible, and they will craft out a unity to be embraced by husband and wife. But here's the problem. Unity in a marriage is not valuable unless husband and wife are united in what is righteous. There are couples that get along peacefully. They enjoy their life together. And all who know them would conclude it is a good match. But their unity doesn't have a basis in God's truth, in righteousness. Ananias and Sapphira teach us that unity only has value when the basis for it is righteousness. Otherwise, Satan can intrude, as he did in this case. Aquila and Priscilla. We're going to go to Acts 18. By the way, people ask me this from time to time. People say, isn't that Aquila? So I'll tell you a little background behind that. I had a Bible teacher in college who said, when there's one L, it's Aquila. And that just stuck with me. Probably I cannot recall anything else the man said. But I recall that and it just stuck with me. He said, when the word has one L, it is pronounced Aquila. And so that, I just picked that up. Uh, I don't charge you anything extra for that. 
Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Paul and I recently went to see the movie, Paul the Apostle. If you ever doubt the power of the Holy Spirit in revealing good, compelling narratives, if you ever doubt that, go watch a biblical-themed movie. The Holy Spirit is so much better than Hollywood. I'm always disappointed by the added narratives, the made-up drama, getting the emphasis more on people than what people were taught and what people taught other people. And one thing Paul and I noticed in this movie right away, very early in the movie, I'm spoiling the movie for you, I know. What I recommend is go to the theater and get the popcorn and then go home. But anyway, one thing Paul and I noticed in the movie, they had Priscilla serving almost like the head of the church in Rome. Based on no biblical evidence at all that she took such authority to be the head of that local church. The story of this couple in the Bible doesn't need any added drama. You don't have to make up anything. You don't have to adapt it to modern perceptions because the truth is beautiful and simple and instructive. So here's how simple the narrative is. Here was this man, Apollos, who came to Ephesus. He's an eloquent man, good public speaker. He's competent in Scripture. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit, and he taught the truth about Jesus Christ. His knowledge, however, was incomplete. Easy to understand in these early years. His knowledge was incomplete. He knew only the baptism of John. So that's incomplete knowledge. Now, here's where I like to say to people, I think it's important to observe what Aquila and Priscilla didn't do. That's instructive. Observe what they didn't do. They didn't ignore Apollos. They didn't say to each other, well, he doesn't know all the truth. Pay attention to him. That wasn't their attitude. They didn't insult Apollos. They didn't offer to him some demeaning, insulting comment. They didn't gossip about Apollos. They took him aside and spoke to him about the way of God. That says so much about this couple. 
Their approach to Apollos was to use the Word of God to fill out his knowledge. They were gracious, helpful, but look at the good results of their grace and helpfulness. Apollos was encouraged. He was welcomed. He was greatly helped. And then, the last verse I read, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now with his complete knowledge, he continues to preach Jesus Christ. Two people graciously approached and taught one man. That was their reaction to the man. Other Christians came in and supplied encouragement, and many were taught by Apollos the truth about Jesus Christ. Back to my movie review. In the movie, Aquila and Priscilla were organizing. They were helping people with physical wounds. They were communicating with Paul through Luke. But there's no scene at all where they're teaching anybody. See, that's that's where Hollywood wants to leave out the important rich part of Scripture. That people were taught. They responded to the teaching that God gave. And then they taught others. Hollywood doesn't want to cover that. They want to over-dramatize it. So Aquila and Priscilla were primarily not teachers or encouragers. In the movie. But in Acts, they are. I think this tells us one of the benefits of a Christian marriage is teamwork in evangelism. Teamwork in the Lord's cause. Husband and wife working alongside each other in such an encouraging way, with such good attitude, devoted to the truth, but also devoted to people to be encouraging and gracious. Think of all the people who were taught and converted by Apollos. Then think on the next level of the good people who were taught and converted by Apollos and who taught others. See, that's the rich part of this drama. The role of good Christian couples, so powerful, so needed to equip people, encourage people, and use God's Word in all that they do. So, back to where I started. The Bible teaches us how to live. And the Bible teaches us in various ways. Principles, historical narratives, illustrations, parables, examples, inferential instruction, commands, prohibitions. In addition... When we read the Bible, we get to meet people, not face to face, but the Holy Spirit tells us about people. And when we read the accounts, we begin to feel like we know them and we can learn from them. We have learned from people. The parents of John the Baptist teach us the value of patient faith, knowing and believing God would use their bodies in preparation for the Messiah to come unselfish allegiance to God and His plan. Ananias and Sapphira teach us the great failure when two people conspire together for their own benefit 
and become involved in deception. They were united in deception. And that becomes an example for us about something we ought not to do as couples. Aquila and Priscilla teach us the value of teaming up to teach and encourage people using God's Word. There isn't any doubt these two people loved each other and they enjoyed doing the Lord's work together. We have couples here with that devotion. We would love to have more. Let's be standing as we 